0: This is Steve Carroll, and you're listening to the EMBASIC Podcast. Today is another installment of the EM Basic Project. In this episode, Dr. Shana Gifford is interviewing Dr. Les Zoon, who is a nationally known speaker in the field of psychiatric emergencies. You may have heard him on a recent episode of MRAP. Today's episode is part one of a two-part series. In this first episode, they will discuss the basics of evaluating psychiatric patients in the ED. They will also discuss how to treat agitated patients in the ED and how to properly work up these patients. Dr. Zun does his own introduction, and he has some conflicts of interest to disclose regarding a few of the medications that he talks about. As always, I myself don't have any conflicts of interest to disclose, and Dr. Zun's mentioning of certain drugs, for which he does consulting work on, doesn't imply endorsement by myself or the AMBASIC podcast. I do want to put one concept into context for medical students and interns. Dr. Zun talks a lot about targeted testing in psychiatric patients, especially those with suicidal ideation who have a normal history and physical exam. He talks about how it is unnecessary to do shotgun testing in all psychiatric patients and how these tests are very low yield. I totally agree with him on this point, however, the psychiatric service you admit your patients to may require these tests before even coming to see the patient, so you have to work within your own system. If your system requires these tests as a matter of routine, don't fall on your sword arguing with your consultant about how they aren't necessary. In my experience, you will never win these arguments. It's best just to order the tests, but as a novice learner, know that they are low yield, and communicate that to your supervisor when you present the patient. Finally, my disclaimer, as always, this podcast does not represent the views and opinions of our defense, the U.S. Army, or the Shawshank EM Residency Program. All right, here's Psychiatric Emergencies Part 1 with Dr. Shana Gifford and Dr. Les Zoon.
1: This is the EM Basic Podcast. This is Shana Gifford. I'm here at Mount Sinai Hospital in Chicago with Dr. Les Zun, who is the chair of the Department of Emergency Medicine and an expert in dealing with psychiatric issues in the emergency department. Dr. Zun, thank you for joining me today. Would you like to give us a little introduction about yourself?
2: Sure. Uh, not only am I professor and chair of the Department of Emergency Medicine at Chicago Medical School, as well as the chair of the Department of Emergency Medicine at Mount Sinai Hospital. I also wear the hat of the system chair of Department of Emergency Medicine at the Sinai Health System, and I also have a secondary appointment at the medical school in psychiatry.
1: Any conflicts you would like to disclose, Dr. Zun?
2: Yes, I would. I am an advisor, a consultant, and speaker for Teva Pharmaceuticals and Alexa Pharmaceuticals. They have developed and now marketing Atisuv, which is an inhaled alexapine. Uh,
1: well, Dr. Zun, thank you for joining us today to talk about common psych issues encountered in the emergency department. We're talking about this today for a lot of reasons. One of them is that 50% of acute psychiatric patients harbor a medical illness, so it's important that when we're treating these patients, we treat both the psych aspect and the medical aspect. The other reason we're going to talk about this is that suicide is rapidly becoming the number two killer of people under 40, and we deal with suicide and attempted suicide in the department frequently. And at the end of the day, even though there's no pill for psychiatric pain, we really can help people in psychiatric distress sometimes. So let's talk about it. I've put together a few cases that'll help illustrate some points. Number one is a schizophrenic patient. Thought disorders are very common. One of the most common thought disorders that we all see in the emergency department is schizophrenia. I am Batman. You bring in the patient. So let's say this is a new patient claiming to be Batman, having delusions. How would you handle this patient assuming this patient has never had an episode before? This is his first presentation.
2: So when a patient comes in with new onset of psychosis, it's important for us to, one, make sure that we get them in an appropriate bed for a psychiatric patient who is psychotic, that they're pro- properly watched and managed, that we, as we're doing our medical clearance process, we obtain a glucose and pulse ox as well as vital signs. It's important that they do get examined without their clothes because there may be some dangers in having them have their clothes on and have weapons or other devices on them while we're um, interviewing them. So we want them to uh, put on a, a hospital gown. So the important thing for someone with, a new onset of psychosis is to decide, is this a medical problem or psychiatric? And usually we can make that determination after we do a detailed history, a good physical exam, a mental status test, and sometimes testing, sometimes lab testing. The lab testing should be done not as routine but as clinically indicated. And in new onset patients, that is an indication to do testing. And most of the time we would do a basic battery of tests. CBC, um, electrolytes, metabolic profile, um, urinalysis. Um, Then there's some question about whether we need to do a urine drug screen. Uh, a blood alcohol level, a CT scan, or other advanced testing.
1: Under what circumstances do you pursue those those advanced testing modalities?
2: Well, so for a patient with new onset that never had it before, that meets otherwise meets criteria, that being um, they never had a psychiatric illness before, um, they're in that age group where we're not concerned about other things, uh, or unlikely to be other things so what i'd say is someone in their late teens early twenties with a first psychotic break more likely and and perhaps some family history of psychiatric illness or schizophrenia more likely than not it will be a um, new psychiatric diagnosis so in those cases we probably just get a routine cbc cmp um, and um, maybe a head CT, especially if there's any focal findings. Um, The CT, I think, would be questionable. Basic labs um, are probably not unreasonable. Um, Then the question is whether to get that urine drug and alcohol screen. Mm -hmm. So um, if you look at the literature, the literature says that patients are fairly reliable on what drugs they do. Uh, as well as the same can be said for those that do drink. And it is not usually diagnostic to get a urine drug screen or alcohol screen because there are lots of problems with those screens. The screens only determine whether someone has used a drug in the last from hours to days and for marijuana, it could be a month. Doesn't tell you that they're clinically intoxicated when they are clinically under the influence of some drugs when they see you, when you evaluate them. Um, rather, um, the history uh, and any evidence or collateral information from family, friends, police about their drug use is probably more reliable and more helpful than the drug screen. Then we get into the issue of alcohol testing. Well, alcohol testing is not usually helpful. Um, uh, You can have uh, a person who walks around and is very functional at an alcohol level of 300 or 400 and you can have somebody like a teenager who is out at a party with an alcohol level of 100 who is comatose. So it doesn't really tell us that Um, They can or cannot give us a good history because the alcohol level could be all over the place. So I think what we really need to do is look at this from a different angle. The different angle is, so when do we get a urine drug screen? When do we get an alcohol level? And the indication is when you have a patient with altered mental status of unknown etiology and you're looking for any possibility, you will... um, you're going to want to get a urine drug screen. You're going to want to get an alcohol level because you're going to try to figure out what's causing the altered mental status. Is it the drugs they're doing? Is it the alcohol? Is that why they're comatose? So in that case, it does give you valuable information that you couldn't get without it. Um, Whereas in a psych patient who is, or any other patient, who can communicate with doesn't necessarily give you diagnosis. So let's look at this at a a different angle. So when do we get a urine drug screen, and when do we get a blood alcohol level on someone? So the indication to get it is someone with altered mental status in which we're looking for the etiology of that altered mental status. So is there coma from some drug they did or too much alcohol or those kind of things? And so this will give us valuable information to tell us where to look and how to um, determine what's wrong with the patient. It's not the same case with the psychiatric patient, especially ones that are able to communicate with you to tell you whether they did drugs or didn't do drugs, and whether they're competent or not competent at the time for you to do an appropriate evaluation.
1: Excellent. So if we could go back for a moment to the physical exam on the psychotic patient. Some of our psychotic patients will be compliant with our physical exam, and that will be quite easy, and some of them will be not as compliant. Do you have any recommendations for dealing with the not-as-compliant psychiatric patient who very much needs their physical exam?
2: So the non-compliant psychiatric patient. Well, the bottom line is you've got to do a physical exam. And I've had medical students tell me they can't examine the patient, and in fact, you have to. That is your obligation as an emergency physician. So the first thing I would do is try to reason with them. Ask them permission to listen to their lungs. Ask them permission to look in their eyes. Sometimes that works. Sometimes you have to negotiate. They may want a phone. They may want to lay down. They may want something else. They may want somebody there with them. That's okay. I'm willing to negotiate if I don't have to go to the next level which would be to re- physically restrain them or to give them meds to, um, that would sedate them um, so that I could do a physical exam. So the bottom line is it's got to be done and if you can't talk them into it and you can't uh, suggest the importance of doing a physical exam then in fact you'll either have to restrain them and do a physical exam Or medicate them, and then do your physical exam.
1: All right. If you had to medicate a patient simply in order to do your exam, what would you choose?
2: So today we have a number of decent choices. So I I think it's really a different question when a patient comes in and agitated. How do we deal with that patient? Um, Because I would prefer not to have to medicate them to examine them. That would be. I think the indication is much more the issue of treating the agitated patient rather than treating a patient so I can examine them. So in the agitated patient, um, first we need to figure out why they're agitated, if we can, quickly. Is it just they need something? Uh, Again, we go into the issue of verbal de-escalation. That should really always be our first means to deal with an agitated patient, to try to speak to them calmly, so that they understand what we're saying to them. And just by the way, many times psychotic patients are having so much else going on in their mind, it's really hard for them to process long, involved, complex questions. And we're notorious for giving long, complex questions to patients, usually without even giving them a lot of time to respond. Um, but it's important for these patients that we give them short, easy questions um, to try to meet whatever need they have at the time. Again, we talk about verbal de-escalation, to talk to them calmly, to, to be in a, a non-setting um, a, a, a setting that is more conducive to talking, um, to see if their basic needs are being met. Um, and sometimes that works. Sometimes just talking to them and, and working things out with them or finding out what their needs are uh, enables us to examine them, to ask them questions without restraining them or giving them drugs. So that would be the first avenue we always need to consider. Um, and for some patients that fails fairly quickly and for others I think that um, it works and, and I think it makes a lot of sense. because. They may just be agitated because um, they don't like someone and they want them away, or they need a phone, or they haven't eaten, or um, they need less uh, environmental stresses. And so just assessing that makes a lot of sense. Okay, well when we decide that doesn't work, uh, then we're going to go to medication. I think the traditional medication that everyone falls back to is Haldol-Lorazepam either 5 or 10 milligrams of Haldol and 1 or 2 of lorazepam, with or without cogentin. Um, and, and here the issue is, um, first of all, it shouldn't be given IV um, because of the risk of torsades. Even Haldol prolongs QT. Not as much as some other agents, but it has. It, it is reported to prolong it. I think it's about 4.2 milliseconds. Um, not a huge prolongation, but there is the potential. Of course, the potential is worse if, in fact, they have underlying congestive heart disease or other, they're on other drugs that can prolong their QT. Um, then the next uh, question is um, the atypical antipsychotics. Um, in which case we might consider um, olanzapine or um, geodon as, as our atypical agents. And the advantage to the atypical over the IM, uh, Haldolorazepam, is um, less side effects, less over-sedation.
1: So we were talking a little bit about the antipsychotics, If you could review for me which your favorite drugs are and why, time-to-onset dose choices, that would be great.
2: So we were talking a little bit earlier about the traditional medication being held on The atypicals commonly used are the ciprexolanzapine, and uh, there's a new inhaled uh, antipsychotic uh, loxapine that I do do some work with, and so I did... um, tell you up front that I have a potential conflict of interest about that medication. Um, Now, we didn't really talk much about oral meds, and in the um, beta guidelines, uh, which are published in the Western Journal of Emergency Medicine, um, they recommend for the patient that will take an oral medication, and there are some studies that support that oral may be as fast as I am. And so I think we need to consider oral over IM in some circumstances, and um, the and we should talk a little bit about dosing as well. So um, for Haldol-Lorazepam, it's usually given 5 or 10 milligrams of the Haldol and 1 or 2 of Lorazepam. It's usually given IM, and as I discussed a little earlier, IV is not recommended, um, the Olanzapine or Zyprexa is usually given t- as a 10 milligram IM. Um, there are oral options for both um, Zyprexa and Geodon, And the Adesuv is uh, 10 milligrams of inhalational. So my choices, or w- what is my go-to first? Um, my go-to first would be to give them an oral medication if there are they're having mild or moderate agitation. Um, for those with severe agitation, if they don't tolerate a oral medication, then of course they'll get IM. Um, I tend to go to the atypicals because I don't want to have to deal with over-sedation that I see with the um, And and. That's pretty much where I go with things right now. We're going to have to see where the Adasu fits in our armamentarium of treatment, um, whether patients will use that medication or not, and um, we're planning on uh, getting some experience with that shortly.
1: Great. Would you like to talk to us a little bit about ketamine and its potential use in the agitated patient?
2: I think ketamine is a, a very interesting medication. I think it'll probably play a much better, bigger role in emergency departments than it's currently playing. It may be that it may be a related compound to ketamine. So there was a couple of interesting studies that were done. One interesting study gave subtherapeutic doses of ketamine to agitated patients and found that it was very effective, giving it IM to those patients And they gave it to a multitude of patients, some with um, agitation from a psychiatric illness and some actually from trauma. And all those patients did very well um, and had few, if any, side effects. Um, Now, the interesting study was one done by Dr. Uh, Larkin a couple of years ago where he gave it to suicidal patients. And those patients got admitted to the hospital. There were 15 patients that got admitted to the psych ward. 14 of those 15 patients were suicide ideation free for, uh, I believe it was a week uh, after they received their ketamine. So I know the NIMH is now doing more studies on the use of ketamine and related compounds. And I suspect there may be a day where we start giving ketamine in the ED for our suicidal patients. And maybe one day we actually send them home um, because the ketamine's done its effect. So it's very interesting. I think that one day we may see broader use of ketamine.
1: Great. So at this point, we have our patient in a state of compliance, and we're able to do a physical exam. As we're going through a differential for what might be the physical etiology, of an acute psychosis. There are medical disorders that mimic acute psychosis and I'd like to go over those with you now so that we can run through them in our minds when we're seeing our patient. One of the uh, sort of memory tools that uh, I was taught when I was in medical school is "Mad Folks," M-A-D-F-O-C-S and that these are the things you should look for when you are assessing your acutely psychotic patient M for memory deficits, A for activity, D for distortions, F for feelings, O for orientation, C for cognition, and S for some other findings. Those were never perfectly clear, but MAD folks is what we were taught. What do you teach your medical students to look for during the exam of an acutely psychotic patient?
2: So I think the first thing is to do a good physical exam, and then the second is to do good mental status testing. So let's first discuss a good physical exam. Um, So before you even see the patient, you most likely will have vital signs. So anybody that has abnormal vital signs, you have to explain it in a psych patient. So because just because they're anxious or just because they're agitated doesn't mean that that's why their heart rate is high. So you need to address any abnormal vital sign then you're going to do a rather routine physical exam from head to toe looking for any abnormalities it could be a heart murmur it could be rales it could be a focal neurologic deficit it could be some injury to the head or any other part of their bodies so really what you're trying to do is two things you're not only trying to say is this a medical problem or psychiatric But should it end up being a psychiatric problem, do they have other medical problems that need to be addressed when they get transferred? So that's the second part of, the second reason to do a good medical clearance evaluation is that those patients, you would hate to send someone to a psychiatric facility that had a gunshot wound you missed, but we hear stories, uh, or some other injury or a medical problem. So, maybe they have asthma or maybe they have diabetes, which is quite common in that population. We need to identify those. We need to stabilize those medical problems. And we need to make sure that whatever facility we're sending them to actually has the capability to give sub Q insulin or inhalational albuterol or something like that. So, that's a real important um, objective in this exam. we go head to toe. We do a good uh, examination, a thorough neurologic exam, because that's really important. And the next question is, well, what about their mental status? In our physical exam, we get very little. So if we say there's six items in a mental formal mental status testing, we probably do two uh, when we do a routine uh, history and physical. We get an idea if they can communicate with us and their their affect and we also get an idea of their appearance and whether they're dressed appropriately or not. But the other parts of the formal mental status test, we don't pick up unless we specifically ask for. We may not know they're delusional. We may not know that they're having hallucinations. We may not know if they're suicidal or homicidal unless we specifically ask those questions. We may not know whether they have insight to their psychiatric illness, unless we start asking them those questions. Um, So, and and lastly, um, their uh, cognitive ability. Again, it's important that if we have any suspicion of their cognitive ability, we need to do specific cognitive testing. So, you're usually not so worried about that in a young person, but in an older person, they can commonly have a cognitive deficit That unless we specifically test, either with mental status, the mini mental state exam, or with the one that I prefer is the clock drawing test, we may not know that they have a cognitive deficit. And just talking to them and doing your history and physical, you may not pick up that in fact they have significant cognitive impairment that uh, makes you question their, their competency or their ability to give you good information.
1: Which patients do you ask to draw the clock?
2: Any question, Any patient that I have a suspicion there is a cognitive deficit. Patients in which I'm trying to assess um, whether they can leave against medical advice and there's some concern about their impairment. Um, an elderly patient which uh, I need to assert whether they have a new cognitive disorder or disability, uh, or this is their chronic state. Um, And so uh, that's my my usual go-to, is doing a clock test as a quick, easy screening tool.
1: Great. So now we come to the point where we've done our physical exam, we've done our mental exam, we've ordered and gotten our tests. At what point do you call in for a psych consult, a formal psych consult?
2: So, um, you're going to call for a formal psych consult if you think the patient needs to be hospitalized, or you want to, like any other patient, you want to connect with your consultant for follow-up, or maybe even you want to get more information about that patient. Although I have to say that psychiatry is a little different than, say, cardiology, where they know their patient well, and they can tell you if today's chest pain is anything to worry about. Psychiatrists sometimes are helpful. Sometimes they're hard to reach or hard to reach the one that provides that one-on-one therapy. And for some people, you can. So the, the question you're really asking is, um, do I make the determination that they need to be admitted or do I have the psychiatrist? And I would say that it's always ultimately going to be the emergency physician's decision if the patient needs to be admitted. But of course, the admitting service will be the psychiatrist. So when do they need to be admitted? When do I need to think about that? Well, we're going to talk about suicide, because suicide is probably one of the biggest diagnoses that they have to be admitted voluntarily or involuntarily. Um, The second is, of course, homicidal behavior. They're basically aggressive, they're violent, uh, or they're a significant suspicion that they're, they're going to be violent or injure someone else. And then the third is that inability to care for oneself. That's a little harder sometimes, but of course if someone has a place to live and somebody to take care of them, and they see, and they want to go back to their home and their caregiver wants them back or their spouse, that's pretty easy that they're probably fairly functional in that environment. But it gets a little more difficult when they're homeless. because Are they homeless because they can't care for themselves um, in the usual environment? Um, so this is where you have to just get a feel for, Are they too psychotic to be able to function out there? Or are they too depressed to be able to meet their basic needs? So some of this is going to be a judgment call. Now, and in some facilities, you can get a psychiatric consultation. Some facilities may have mental health workers or crisis workers or um, those people that can assist in making that determination. But again, I keep going back to it's still your responsibility. Even if you get somebody to help you or get more information or get collateral information or talk to the psychiatrist, it's always going to be your decision.
1: That brings us to our second case, depression in the ED. So depression, suicide, contemplation, suicide attempt are extremely common in the emergency department. Supposedly a third of people in their lives ideate or attempt at some point, and there's a 100,000 ED emissions a year for suicide. In um, the adult depressed patient, we're taught in medical school to look at SAD cages or saggy caps, and then we're also taught to think about depression as acute or chronic depression. I'd love for you to talk to us about the depressed patient, the approach to the depressed patient, and the workup for depression in the ED.
2: So depression Um, our responsibility is to determine whether that patient who is depressed can be treated as an outpatient or inpatient. Of course, we're going to try to make them more comfortable while they're in our ED and see what we can to understand them. Um, But the question is, can they meet their basic needs? And if they can then, and they can get follow-up, and there's resources in the community, they can go home um... and then those patients that are so depressed are contemplating suicide that's when we have to make a decision of what's their risk now what you had mentioned about sads and modified sads and all those things are really screening tools so if we're trying to decide if someone has a suicidal tendency or we're worried about occult suicidality we can give them the sads or modified sads and it gives us some information but the, the biggest problem that we have as emergency docs is that there's no way to rule in or rule out suicidality to the point of does that patient need to be admitted or not. It's not like we're getting a troponin on the chest pain and if the troponin's, troponin's positive, then we know they have an MI. It's much harder in the depressed patient or the suicide patient. Now remember, not every depressed or not every suicidal patient had depression, there are other mental illnesses that lead to suicidality and completed suicides. So the question is, how do we assess suicide potential? Um, And right now, there's no definitive test. What we need to do is to get the most information we can get on the patient and try to make a reasonable judgment whether they fall into um, high risk Moderate risk or low risk. Now, there are a number of things that will help us make that decision. Um, psychiatric illness, prior history of suicide, uh, family history of suicide, substance use um, disorders, um, other um, other medical problems for that for that older person, um, and how they. Um, communicated their suicidality, whether they had a plan or not a plan, Mm -hmm. whether they wanted to be caught or not caught. So there's a number of factors that, both dynamic and static, because age and gender and um, um, sexual preference and other things that can put patients at risk, or more risk or less risk, both dynamic and static. And what we try to do is put those all together and say, Do we think this patient's high risk? Then they need to be admitted. There's no question. We're going to call that psychiatric colleague of ours and say this patient needs to be admitted. Moderate risk, those are the patients that probably need a mental health assessment by either a psychiatrist or some other professional that can help us assess that patient. Um, And some of those will need to be admitted and some of those may go home. The low risk are ones that most likely can go home, and we need to do that assessment. So who could be, what patients might be low risk? Well, that patient that you took care of in the ED with um, abdominal pain and you didn't find anything, and you said, I'm going to send you home, and they said, oh, doctor, by the way, I want to kill myself. Well, in that case, you're not going to want to admit that patient because they're, in fact, manipulating the healthcare system, and it's probably not a good idea for anyone to put that patient in a psychiatric facility because they're trying to be manipulative. And another situation where we might not want to put a patient in the hospital is the teenager that had some suicide ideation, who is probably better off at home with supportive family and friends, and removing any risk devices, you know, at risk, like if they have a gun in the home or they have meds or toxins or those kind of things, they're going to want to remove lethal means. Um, so, and those patients probably would do better getting outpatient treatment than being in an inpatient psychiatric facility. So, we've kind of, and, and and probably the the third category of the suicidal patient that is low risk and probably would not benefit by a psychiatric admission are those that feel suicidal their whole life. And we don't think about that a lot in emergency medicine where we have a patient that every day of their life they think about suicide and they're 50 years old, they're still alive. The chance of them committing suicide or completing suicide in the next few weeks is pretty small. And some people just think about that uh, all the time. So. Um, so we really need to do an appropriate assessment. It shouldn't be an automatic, if you say, uh, if, if the patient says they're suicidal, automatically they all get admitted. Because you know you said that word, so I have to put you in the hospital. Um, I don't think that we should be admitting every single patient that says that. We should admit a lot of them that say that, but not every single one, because some of them don't
1: need to be admitted. Do you ever use contracts similar to the pain contract that we sign with people who we think might be abusing opioids? Do you ever sign a self-harm contract with patients? Has that ever worked in your practice?
2: I strongly recommend against contracts for safety. Why? Well, um, a couple of reasons. Uh, I have no relationship with that person except for that one time they came to see me in the ED. So I don't have some therapeutic alliance with them. It's not ongoing treatment like a psychiatrist may have over a year, months and years, where the psychiatrist knows the patient well enough to say, I want you to sign this contract, you're not going to hurt yourself, you'll call me first. But for us in the emergency department, I, I think it's a disaster waiting to happen. Um, I, I would not recommend it in the emergency department, and there's very limited settings where it may be useful. Um, it's your determinant because just just on the face value, they sign a contract. What's that contract worth? If they kill themselves, it's worth a lawsuit for you. If they don't, it has no value. So a contract like that, there's no obligation. There's nothing holding the patient back. Um, so I would never recommend it.
0: Hey, everybody. This is Steve coming back in. Just to let you know that this is the end of part one, part two will be posted sometime next week. Until next time, take care.